Well, our time in the Word tonight is Q&A, so take your Bible and we'll be going from passage to passage and some of the times maybe just mentioning passages without actually consulting them. Uh, So just uh, have your Bible handy and we'll turn to some of these and and as I say, some of them maybe just mention a passage that you can jot down or um, look up on your own, etc. Great questions as always. Thank you for those who took the time to uh, turn those in and... uh, prompt our thoughts and uh, really stir our thinking. So the first question, it comes out of Romans chapter 13. Uh, You can turn there if you'd like. Romans chapter 13, the opening verses of this chapter are about human government. And Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says really some remarkable things about human government, especially in light of the fact that he was writing in the Roman Empire, under the Roman Empire, to the Romans who were right at the capital, at the heart of the Roman Empire. And in chapter 13, verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And the question that is asked is this, Pastor Brian, how does Romans 13, 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, square with, and then there's four or five passages here, and you would be familiar with them, uh, passages where clearly government punished Christians in the first century or uh, was, uh, government was uh, evil or maybe unjust, etc. And, uh, you know, even in Jesus, of course, Jesus' case, uh, there was by no means justice in the crucifixion. Uh, it was the greatest example of injustice in the history of mankind. So the person is wondering, how does this square? Well, I, a couple thoughts on that. First of all, I'd remind you that Paul was the one writing this, and Paul was the one who sometimes experienced some of those things, the unjust treatment. On the other hand, Paul was also the same person who, as a Roman citizen, did get protection from the Roman government. You will remember that when he was arrested on the Temple Mount by the Jews, it was Roman soldiers who stepped in and spared his life. And the Roman government, Roman system, sort of, uh, they weren't always above board and everything because they were playing the political game of trying to keep the Jews satisfied, keeping him a prisoner. But they didn't let the Jews kill him. And when they found out about the secret plot on his life in Acts, uh, they took him away by night, got him out to Caesarea by the sea. And eventually when Paul realized this Jewish pressure would uh, not allow him to have a fair trial, he appealed to Caesar and the appeal was granted, which was uh, what was mandated as, uh, as under the Roman Empire and for a Roman citizen, etc. So Paul had seen both sides of this coin. He knew there were times when government would not be completely just, when government would not be uh, all that it should be. But for Paul, writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, the exceptions do not cancel out the rule. His basic point here is that government is a God-ordained institution, and therefore we should submit to government and obey government. And in fact, his exhortation for us to do that implies, now catch this, it implies that there are times when we don't want to do that or don't think we ought to do that because maybe everything isn't exactly right. I mean, think of it this way. If the government did, always did everything right, why would there be an exhortation to submit to government and obey it? That would be easy. That would be automatic. So the clear implication is, you know, there are times when you're not going to like it and you may not agree with it, but you need to submit. Now, the obvious exception, Acts 4, where the apostles were commanded by leaders. In this case, it was Jewish leaders, not Roman. 
but commanded not to speak about Jesus. Don't talk about the resurrection. They said, we'll obey God and not man. So the obvious exception is if government tells you you can't read your Bible, you can't pray, uh, i.e. Daniel in his situation where he kept praying anyway and was thrown to the lion's den. And, uh, so there is an obvious exception. But Paul is saying government is a divine institution uh, ordained by God. Therefore, you obey it, whether you agree with it always or not, whether you like it or not, and whether it's always completely just or not. You obey government because one of the things that Paul understands that I'm not sure that we really understand is that bad government is way better than no government. I will never forget, as long as I live, conversation I had with one of our missionaries, Jonathan Roshager in Albania, in the early days when he and his family uh, were there, and the government collapsed, uh, communism collapsed, and uh, it, it was, there was just no government. And it was just, I, I was blown away by the descriptions of the things that he told me. He said, you would have to drive down the street, to, is, get going as quickly as you can, get up to about 90 miles an hour on any road you could, because if not, there were just renegades that would stop you, kill you, take your car. There was no government, no police. There was nothing to restrain evil. And, and the things that went on, you can only imagine, because you've seen little news clips about some places where there is no government and the atrocities that take place. So this is Paul's point here. N- Bad government is even, is, is even way better than no government. So submit to your government. It's God-ordained, God-sanctioned. That doesn't mean he sanctions everything that government does, uh, but God has put government in place for this purpose to punish evil, to promote good. Governments never do it perfectly, but uh, you don't use that as an excuse to disobey government. So I understand your, the tension there when you see some examples in Scripture and even in life where government isn't all that it should be. But Paul, Paul knew that full well when he wrote this. He was not, under no illusions and still writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is what he said we are to do. All right, uh, next question says this. Um, as a victim of child sexual abuse, I have deeply embedded sense of shame, a destruction kind of shame. Uh, what is biblical shame, a spiritual uh, productive shame? This is a really good question and a uh, valid question and a common one if those of you who've ever worked with men or women, usually it's women sadly, but who have been abused sexually as a child. This, this, I mean, this fits exactly with the scenario that often occurs. You have a, a child, who, an innocent child, who is taken advantage of, and then, tragically, not only do they have that to deal with, but they deal with shame for years and years. And so it's a very good question, one that is, uh, you, know, you know, I'll answer briefly, but I, I can't, can't do justice to it here. Uh, what is biblical shame? Well, the only appropriate biblical shame is the shame that comes or ought to come when, like what Adam and Eve did, and they hid themselves. When they sinned against God, there should have been shame there. They were hiding because there was guilt, not just the feeling of guilt, but actual guilt, and therefore the shame that accompanies it. So uh, what is biblical shame? Biblical shame is the feeling that accompanies the actual condition of guilt that is genuine. In other words, when there is genuine, valid guiltiness before God, 
there should be an accompanying shame. That is a proper kind of shame. But the kind of shame, sadly, that you are dealing with here uh, is a kind of shame that, that is really difficult to overcome. It can be overcome. Uh, I would recommend a book to you. I can't think of the title. And just now as I'm saying, I can't even think of the author um, on shame. Someone help me. He spoke here just at our church. Ed Welch, thank you. Yeah, I even wrote a, a foreword in the book. Sorry about that. But I couldn't think of the name of it. So, uh, um, uh, Ed Welch's book on shame. He does a tremendous job in there. So if this is you, or even if you didn't submit this, uh, I, would, I would recommend his book. It'll be easy to find, just Ed Welch on shame. You can Google it and find it. He does a tremendous job on talking about what is valid shame, uh, what is uh, not valid shame, etc. So if this is something that you struggle with, wrestle with, uh, you know, uh, God bless you and your, your, your efforts to overcome this, but there is hope and there can be victory. I would highly commend that resource to you. All right, next question says this. Um, it is clear that God permits divorce in the case of adultery, but it is also clear in the book of Hosea and by the example of Christ's love for his church that God always desires reconciliation. How do I know at what point it is God's best for me to divorce? Now, I'm assuming by the question from what you said earlier that you're in a situation where your spouse has been or is being adulterous, just by the way you say that. So my answer will be based on that assumption. Uh, I am so very restless and many days uh, I find myself unable to handle the simplest responsibilities of life. Uh, How long is it appropriate to live this way? Again, a a very uh, sincere question and a very transparent question. Uh, What you say in your preface, if you will, is correct. Uh, I believe very clearly from Matthew 19 that God does permit divorce in the case of adultery uh, because God knows how uh, devastating that sin is to a marriage, how much it ruptures the relationship, how much it shatters the trust. And in many cases, and I'm not sure if this is yours, this is probably a situation where uh, it would be worthwhile to have some individual conversation with someone who could walk you through some things. Uh, But just to say this, uh, in many cases I've dealt with through the years, it's not a matter, though some make that accusation, sadly, it's not a matter of unforgiveness. There are just times when people have been violated in that way, when their spouse has been unfaithful, and that it's not an unwillingness to forgive but rather it's just an inability for trust to ever be gained back. And I believe that's why God grants divorce in those cases. You're right. Uh, the heart of God is for reconciliation. Uh, but there, there are those times when, again, the issue is not a lack of forgiveness. The issue is just the trust has been show, so shattered, especially depending on the circumstances, uh, that the, the person, and if you don't have trust, you don't have a marriage. You cannot have a marriage without trust. So uh, there are those times when the, 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 the uh, guilty party, that is the offending party, the adulterous party, uh, has shattered the, the trust in such a way that it just maybe cannot be earned back or built back. So God does recognize that. Now, as a staff, as, as an elder board, uh, we never, ever, I don't think ever in all the years I've been here, I've never heard any of our staff or elders, we never counsel divorce. We never counsel it, that is, recommend it, but we will always support someone who's walking through it if they have this scenario of biblical grounds. So in other words, if someone comes to us and says, my spouse was unfaithful, should I get divorced? We will never say yes. 
Never. We would never say that. Uh, well, let's talk. Let's see if there can be uh, reconciliation. But if this, uh, someone comes to us and says, my spouse was unfaithful. Here are the circumstances. I mean, it was just so, it's always heinous, but it, doubly heinous in the way it was carried out. And, you know, my best friends, you know, are all these types of scenarios. And, and uh, I, it's just, you know, I just, even though I, I, in my heart I can forgive, I don't know how we can ever have a marriage. We would never try to talk that person out of it. Say, oh, what are you doing? You shouldn't, no, no, you shouldn't, because that is a, a call that that person has to make before God if he or she has grounds. Uh, so, you know, sometimes when it comes to the issue of divorce, you'll hear people, people say, well, there are always two sides. Well, there are always two sides, but God recognizes that in this type of scenario, there is a guilty party, and there is, if you don't like the term innocent, I understand that there are no innocent people, then I'll say this. There are, there are scenarios where there is a guilty party and there is a faithful party. That is, there is someone who has been faithful to that marriage and by God's grace sought to be all that he should be or should be. And the spouse just makes a choice. I'm going to go with someone else. And so God recognizes that. So be very, my, my point is, be very careful here, beloved, when you're working with people through this because sometimes well-meaning people will... Knowing that God wants reconciliation, sometimes really hammer the person who's been faithful and really tried to work at the marriage, and the person who's the violator is sort of the one that, oh, we're so sorry you did that, but we love you and we'll forgive you, and it's just sort of turned on its head. So God would not have given the, that exception clause in Matthew 19 if he didn't recognize there are exceptions, or there, there is an exception to the standard position of God to stay in your marriage. But again, I say to whoever wrote this, this is probably one that you would, sounds to me like, would be worthwhile to connect with someone uh, who can walk you through Scripture and see, because it sounds like you, there's a heart that wants reconciliation, but there's such devastation, you're not sure uh, how to go or where to go from there. All right, next question says this. This is out of 1 John 4. You can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. We're not going to reference a verse. But twice in 1 John 4, uh, John says, God is love. That's the fir- famous statement of 1 John 4, 8, but it's not the only place in 1 John 4. And the, the simple, I say simple, simple in the sense of very short sentence, not simple in answering it. The simple question is, what does it mean, God is love? Well, as I say, it's a very short sentence, but it's m- maybe the most profound question that's asked tonight because I will tell you right up front, there is no way I can tell you what that means. There's no way, there is absolutely no way I can tell you what it means that God is love. Now, I can talk about some of the implications of it and some of the aspects of it, but notice that it says twice in 1 John 4, God is love. It does not say God loves. That's different. Yes, God loves, but it doesn't say merely that. It says God is love. That's who he is. That is, that is, that is his character. He just loves Anybody who gets in the way gets loved. I mean, that because it's sort of like the sun. The sun is, shines. And you know what? You are warmed by it unless you hide in the shade or get behind or cloud covers it or whatever. But, but, but God, that's just who he is. It's an incredible statement. There are very few statements like that in Scripture, by the way. I can think of three. There may be more. But God is spirit from John 4. God is light. God is a consuming fire. And God is love. Those are the only four statements I know of in Scripture that are that definitive. Now, there are a lot that say God does this or God is like that. But to say God is this, and that is one of them. And it's not only once, 
but twice repeated in 1 John 4. God is love. That's his nature. That's part of his essence. He loves. And I think this enters into the, sometimes you get a little more technical theological debate over the issue of, you know, sometimes people debate limited atonement, unlimited atonement, and they debate, you know, does God love everyone or just love the elect? I don't know if you've ever, you know, run into that because there are passages that, you know, especially in the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, God hates the wicked. God hates. So does God love everybody or does he just love his people? Well, listen, again, God is love. doesn't even say God loves. God is love. That's, that's what he is. So it's not like he even has to work at loving because that's who he is. So I think that should enter into the wrestling of that very complex theological issue. So uh, I'm sorry, I can't do justice to that. I don't know anyone who can do justice to that statement because it is brief in 1 John 4, repeated twice, but it is utterly profound. God is love. Great question to, to contemplate. Uh, Next question says this, how come Jesus selected the apostle John to look after his mother rather than one of of his half-brothers or maybe James? And I, you know, I don't, we can't obviously say dogmatically because if we don't have a chapter and verse that can can state it, but I do think from the information in the New Testament, we can have a fairly good educated guess. And I would give two answers to that question. One is because at that point at the crucifixion, we don't know that any of his half-brothers were believers. We do know that James became a believer, and his brother James became a believer as a result of the resurrection. First Corinthians 15 indicates that. But at that point, Jesus was entrusting his mother to a believer not unbelievers. And then you say, what about James? And I'm assuming you mean James, the brother of John. Well, if you know the story of the book of Acts, in Acts 12, James was one of the earliest martyrs. So he wasn't going to be around very long. So that leads to the second reason why I think Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John, even though you may say, well, did Jesus know his brothers were going to believe eventually? You know, that gets into the whole issue of his humanity and his deity and interplay. But just suffice it to say, um, John was the one who lived into his 90s. So that would be another reason. John's going to outlive all of those others. Uh, And in fact, it's only in historical tradition, but historical tradition tells us John was the only one of the apostles not to die a martyr's death that he died of old age in the city of Ephesus, interestingly, still taking care of Jesus' mother. So for the two reasons, one, Jesus wanted to entrust the care of his mother to a believer and also to one who would live, outlive her, not one who would die young. And then, by the way, again, this is just some of it's conjecture, but it is interesting to note that Joseph is not mentioned as the texts of the Gospels go on. And the implication of that, and also Jesus leaving his mother, care of his mother to someone, the implication of that is that Joseph died probably at some point during Jesus' ministry, or maybe even prior to it. Uh, so therefore, Mary's going to have to be cared for by someone. Natural decision we would think would be one of the kids, but not if they're not believers. So John was the one. All right, next question says this. Um, Throughout this summer, turn over to 2 Thessalonians 3. It's not exactly on this, but, but this will help us answer. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, Throughout the summer, there have been announcements regarding Matthew 18 and actions pertaining to 
our brothers and sisters who are in sin. At the end of this, one of the statements is, if the brother won't listen, you know, after all the steps, uh, you treat him as a heathen and tax collector, Matthew 18, 17. The idea is that we shouldn't eat with them or befriend them except to help them back to Christ. How does this pertain to the families of straying brothers or sisters, even as far as their father, mother, brothers, sisters, children? Are these literal family members to avoid those contacts as well until they have acknowledged their sins and are ready to repent? Very excellent question, a very practical one. I'll just make the statement and then talk about it. I would say, in answer to your question, if you want short answer, yes. I think that does apply to family members. And in some ways, I would say it especially applies to family members. Because think about this. If all other Christians... If all other Christians obey Scripture and say to this person, you know, we love you, but we can't fellowship with you. We can't be intimate with you. Uh, that's what 1 Corinthians 5, when it says don't eat with them. Eating in the first century was the, 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 the deepest level of close relationship there was. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, don't eat with a brother, he's not saying, oh, if you have a meal, you've sinned. He's talking about don't fellowship, don't be close with. So just think about this. If every Christian in that person's life obeys Scripture at that point and says, we love you, we want a fellowship, but you've made this choice and you've cut us off, but all the family members who are believers just go on with life as normal? What impact does that have on that person? You've just neutered the impact. So in some ways, Christian family members even have more of a responsibility to say to this person, we love you. I mean, you're our aunt or our uncle or our brother, little literal blood brother or dad or mom or whatever it is, and we love you, and obviously we want to have a relationship, but you have really, you have put a strain on this. You have forced us to not be able to have intimate fellowship with you. And, and, and yet you need to be careful because sometimes when it's family, it's more than just a, you know, theoretical. It becomes real personal. And what I've seen is some family members in trying to take that step, I think, they violate this spirit and intention of Scripture because they're basically mean. You stupid idiot sister, you. What are you doing running off with another man? I'll never talk to you again the rest of my life. That's not right. So Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, notice um, down in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So you do need to withdraw, yet... Do not count him as an enemy. Now, that's the caution. We've got to be careful. This person's not an enemy. You don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So in answer to your question, yes, I think that does apply to family members. And in fact, uh, I remember not too long ago counseling with a couple in our church. It broke my heart, but I just, just had so much respect for them. But they had an older son, an older couple, and they have an older son who left his wife and ran off with other women and all this stuff. And it was like, you know, he still claims to be a Christian, so what do we do? I said, you still do what Scripture says. In fact, you may have the greatest impact in his life to say, you're our son. And we love you, but you know, we cannot condone what you're doing here. And if we just go on every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every holiday, as if everything's fine, we're sending the message to you that you can live that way and still claim to be a Christian, and there's no, there are no ramifications. And to their credit, they looked at Scripture and said, this is going to be really hard, but this is what we need to do with our grown son in relation to our grown son. 
Uh, now, I, I'm not suggesting, you know, because again, the family dynamics are sometimes you have a, a situation like that and it comes to, you know, Christmas and, and you're all invited over to someone else's house and that family member comes. I'm not saying, oh, you're in sin because you happen to go there. But again, the point, don't lose sight of the point. The point is you do not want to send the message. This is whether you're a relative or not. You do not want to send the message to a Christian who is in sin that everything is okay. That life just goes on as normal. That is not the message you want to send. You want to send the opposite. Life is not okay. You have put a real monkey wrench into things, and we love you, and we will always love you, but you've made it tough for us to know how to relate to you now. So yes, I think even with family members, there needs to be that. Again, don't treat them as an enemy, but neither give the impression, no big deal, so what that you stole all this money from your company and still claim to be a Christian. No big deal that you, you, know, that you claim to be a Christian and you're unfaithful to your spouse. No big deal that you're, you claim to be a Christian and you're drunk every weekend. No big deal. That is a big deal. And even as a family member, you need to take that position. All right, next question says this. Back to Romans again. Romans 3, 5. Romans 3, 5 says that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Could we have known how good God really is if we had not known evil? This is a, re- a good question, and there's a real fine line here. You are correct in the way you're thinking that Paul makes it clear in Romans that our sin is the black backdrop that the diamond of God's goodness and righteousness is placed on to really make it stand out. So there is a sense in which God even uses evil for good purposes, to show us his character, to show us his kindness, to show us his goodness, etc. So you're right, you said it well, but the one caution I want to give is that you want to be careful and not take that to another logical step that therefore evil is a necessity. Because evil is still evil. God still condemns evil. And even though God may use evil to do something good, we don't want to say, well, therefore, you know, we really would not have known how good God is apart from evil. So therefore, we in our minds, or maybe even our actions, minimize the evilness of evil. So yes, you're right, but be careful. And Paul, of course, the mastermind that he had in Romans, he does a masterful job of that fine line of saying God uses unrighteousness, man's unrighteousness, to display his righteousness, etc. But he never, ever condones evil and therefore never attributes it to God. Well, God, you know, he created it so he could, you know, he made people to become evil or, or forced sin on the universe just so he could show how good he is. That's then... I think you're stepping over the line scripturally. So uh, good question, valid one. Uh, Just stay within the biblical parameters. Uh, Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is, of course, with the Abrahamic covenant God made with Abraham. And if you study this in Genesis 12 and 15, you will find that there are three components to God's uh, covenant, land, seed, and blessing. God promised Abraham specific land, seed, and that he would be a blessing. And so all of that is being laid out here in Genesis 15 in the Abrahamic covenant. And part of it, God 
predicts the fact that you're going to go down in Egypt, verse 13, 400 years you'll be down in there as a nation, but I'm going to bring you out, and so forth. And he says, as he's explained all this in verse 16, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the question is, it speaks of the sin of the Amorites. What was this? Can you elaborate on God's meaning here? Um, I don't think that we need to see this as a specific sin. In other words, the sin, that there's one sin that the Amorites uh, need to commit yet before this plan can go forward. No, the idea here that what God is saying is this. You're going to go down in Egypt, but eventually I'm going to give you this land where you're at, the promised land. But I'm not going to give it to you until, and let me just paraphrase this, until the sin of the Amorites gets so bad that it is, now, now God can judge anytime he wants, but this is just a statement of God's mercy, God's patience. In other words, he's not going to punish the Amorites and drive them out until he absolutely has to, until their sin is full. And we know by the time, by the way, that the children of Israel came out of Egypt after their wanderings and all that, by the time they headed in, a lot of people struggle. You know, God told Joshua, just go in and kill them, wipe them out, etc. Well, we know what the, by that point, what the spiritual condition was of the Amorites. And now this is not just one group. This is the term that's used for all the people in the land in this context. And the sins of the people of, of, of that land, of what we'd say Canaan, the sins were horrendous. I mean, it was the, what Israel eventually lapsed into, sacrificing their children. I mean, this was like cancer in the land, and God says, root it out, drive it out. So that's what's being referred to here. I'm going to give you their land, and you're going to drive them out, but I'm going to wait to where there's no doubt whatsoever, no one could even question God's justice, that it's way past due, if you will. Uh, the, The sin of the Amorites will be so full, so past what could be justifiable, that at that point you're going to be released as a people come into the land. You will be my rod of judgment on them because their sin will have reached reach to the high heaven, we might say, in a paraphrase. So that's, that's what's being described here in the Abrahamic covenant. Next question is asked by a little gal, and uh, she asks a question that probably everyone in this room has wrestled with at some point or another. Uh, why did God make people if he knew they would sin? And of course, you can ask this question back even further. Why did God create Satan or Lucifer if he knew he would sin? And why did God create if he knew there would be evil? This, there's a technical name for this area of theology. It's called theodicy. And theodicy wrestles with the issue of evil and how you sort of coordinate that with the character of God. If God is love, which we talked about earlier, God is good, then why? How, how do you explain this? How do you? And the fact of the matter is this. You can give some statements, but there are just no easy answers. You know, this is where I think Paul's statement comes in. We walk by faith and not by sight. I don't think this side of heaven, again, I'm not saying there are no plausible answers and there are no statements. Obviously, you could say, and it could sound like a cliche, but you could say, ultimately, because God's plan that he chose to go with, he knew would be the best plan and would bring him the most glory and the good for his people. That is a valid statement. Uh, But it still doesn't always you know, answer all the, a lot of times when it becomes emotional questions of evil and, and you know, just like someone this week was wrestling with this and they were talking to me and they, this person had spent a lot of time in India and if you've ever been to India, then you know that just about everybody there, I don't mean to be harsh, I'm just going to say it to make the point, almost everyone there is going to hell. 
because there are very few believers and there are mil- it's just a highly populated continent country so why you know you, if you've never wrestled with that you don't have a heart i mean if you look, if you can't say oh it just doesn't make sense all of these millions of people going to hell now again we can say they have general revelation they ought to respond to it. i understand all that i'm just saying it's still there is a wrestle here and this little gal wrestling with it and uh, i think again you can give some answers and there are some 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 statements you can make but but i, I would just encourage don't don't give the impression that simplistic answers answer everything. I think it's far better to say we don't have all the answers, but in eternity it'll all be made clear than to, to give simplistic answers that really don't address people and it just leaves them thinking there really are no answers. And then it, it gives them more of a struggle. All right, next question says this. When children grow up being raised in a Christian home, being taught by godly parents to love God and hide His Word in their hearts, is it necessary to have a definite time in their lives when they realize their lostness and ask Jesus into their lives? And the answer is that is yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, now, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a dramatic event, obviously. We don't want to start saying the only true people who are saved are those who have had, you know, some type of uh, a conversion that some, uh, you know, some type of, thing where you, you, you give your testimony and everybody's flabbergasted by all the sin that you did for all those years and all that. Because don't ever forget, it takes as much of the grace of God to keep a person from sin as it does to rescue a person from sin. So the person who was raised in a Christian home never veers, never wavers, comes to faith in Christ. That is just as much of a testimony of God's grace as the one who not raised in a Christian home or raised in a Christian home and is deep into sin and God saves him. Both are trophies of grace. Uh, so, in answer to your question, but there still has to be, because even if they're taught to love God and, and taught to obey Him, etc., the Bible's still clear we're sinners by birth, nature, choice, and practice. We're still lost. And so there has to come a time. And it may be, I, I know of some who, no doubt in my mind, were saved at five, six, whatever, c- clear conversion, and never wavered from that. Uh, but they understand their lostness and they cry out for forgiveness. Now, it may not be the same type of thing as the person, you know, who's a drug addict or a pimp or a prostitute or whatever, uh, maybe not as much heinous activity, but sinners who need God's salvation and God's forgiveness. So, yes, there's no such thing as riding the coattails of Christian parents. There has to be an individual, uh, remember, individual choice or commitment on each person's part. And remember what John the Baptist said to the People of Israel, don't think to say to yourselves, hey, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, they thought, hey, we're good. We're just in. God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. That's not good enough. Just because you're in the line, John the Baptist was saying, you, you have to, in fact, he said, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. All right, next question says this. Matthew 18 tells of the shepherd throwing a big party when strange sheep is restored to the fold. Why don't we do this as a church or even announce that the ch- to the church that discipline work so we can welcome them back? A uh, couple questions on that. One reason why we don't do that much, sadly, is because it doesn't happen very much. In other words, when you time you get to that point and there have been, by the way, when we make an announcement like that, it's usually because there have been so many appeals or at least enough appeals for the person is just flatly refused and there's no doubt they aren't going to move. So by the time it gets to that point, rarely there are very few successes. But there are some. And we've had one huge one recently. And we are talking about when we're going to announce that one. 
Uh, but we just, there, there are a lot of factors because sin makes things messy. And when sin makes things messy, it's not easy always just to come back and make a simple announcement because all the people who are hurt by, by the sinful choices, etc. But we've had a really huge success one in just the last few weeks. And we've been talking as elders about when and how to announce that. But there's just some messes that still need to kind of be resolved. All right, next uh, question says this. Dear Pastor Brian, in Acts, all the disciples had healing powers, things like that. So why don't, uh, doesn't anyone have healing powers or see visions and stuff like that today? Again, this is a youngster that asked the question. Well, first of all, you're right. It was the apostles who had those things, not maybe exclusively, but primarily. And they are therefore sometimes called uh, the apostolic sign gifts. Uh, there were certain gifts, healing and certain gifts, speaking in other languages, that are specifically called in Scripture sign gifts. That means they had a purpose, a sign to point to something, and once whatever they were pointing to came to fruition, there's no need for the sign. It's a simple answer to the question. Um, but if you really want to probe it, you might ask one of your parents to get a copy of the message I did, I think it was a year or so ago, called What About Miracles, Healing, and Tongues? And walk with you through that, and it will explain all the biblical reasons why we believe that those sign gifts were intended for the first century and are no longer operative and have ceased. The technical theological term is cessationism, uh, but that, that's the short answer because there was a specific purpose it, those sign gifts played their purpose, and that's why we don't believe they're around. Same thing with like visions that you mentioned, because now we have a complete word from God. We don't need visions for God to tell us his word. We have it in Scripture. So uh, that's the short answer to the question. All right, just a couple more here. Turn over to John 20 for this one. John chapter 20. And the question is on verse 22. This is after the resurrection as Jesus appears to the disciples. And when he had said this, or verse 21, as the Father, at the end of verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what is going on here? What is this Jesus breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's important to tie it into Verse 21, as the Father sent me, I send you. Because if you'll remember, Jesus told them around this time, you need to go to Jerusalem and you need to wait. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they did that. And the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. That's when the Spirit came. So therefore, you have two options on how to take verse 22. One is, some see this as a pre-fulfillment of the actual fulfillment, which took place in Acts 2. And by the way, we could document that there's no question that the fulfillment of the Spirit coming that Jesus promises Acts 2. Absolutely no doubt about that. So you could see this. Some theologians say this is a pre-fulfillment, but I don't, I don't lean toward that view. I take it as this was a, a picture promise. He breathed on them to say, receive the Holy Spirit, and that this was a picture of what is going, was certainly going to happen and happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost because Jesus connects it with sending them. And they weren't really sent out to do ministry until Acts 2. In fact, they were told to do the opposite. Wait. Don't go until the Holy Spirit comes. Then you can go with your ministry. So I take it that this was a picture promise from Jesus. I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. You will, this will come about, Acts chapter 2, and that's when you're unleashed to go. 
So that's the way I take this. But you could go either way. It's a pre-fulfillment. But if it's a pre-fulfillment, then for what and how long? Uh, or it's a picture promise of what was coming. All right, last one. Actually, there's two parts to this one, but it, it'll be quick. First of all, uh, why does so much Christian music sound so sad? We are the only true free people on the earth. We have the most amazing gift of salvation, but so much music that's sung in churches seems sad. Well, I guess when I read that this afternoon, my response was just, I, maybe it's just the grid that, you know, because I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I don't know that most of the music we sing here is sad. If it is, there's a reason why maybe it's a song of contemplation or meditation. But So I guess maybe it's context. I'm not sure if you're just talking about in general or what, but I, I don't see that, so I can't really address it. I don't think we sing a lot of sad music. In fact, usually when we get criticized, it's because we sing a lot of upbeat, happy music. So that's another, another story, all right? Uh, final question of the night says this. Uh, could you please explain the basic structure of Grace Bible Church leadership, how pastors fit into leadership, how decisions are made, what happens on Sundays throughout a week? Since being here at Grace over a year now, there have been three situations that were announced from the stage on Sundays where someone is living in sin and Matthew 18 was referenced. How do you or the leaders decide what situations to announce to a whole group of people? Very good question, and let me just quickly walk you through this. First of all, our structure is this. We have elders and deacons, and the elders deal with ministry issues. The deacons deal, and there's overlap here, but primarily functional issues, uh, budget, uh, facilities, etc. We work closely together. We meet once a month on Monday nights for communication to make sure that two groups are working in conjunction coordination, not going at odds. Uh, in addition, the elders, we meet every Wednesday morning except on the Wednesday where we have a Monday night deacons meeting uh, or leadership team meeting. And the pastors, you ask how they fit in, Pastors are, we use these terms, they're not necessarily biblical terms, but we just refer to lay elders and staff elders. And they're all elders. So the pastors are staff elders, the lay elders are also elders, and there is complete equality. Nobody is over anybody among the elder board. There's not a lay elder over the staff, there's not a staff elder over the lay elders. I'm not the boss around here. I am one of the elders. I'm on an equal plane with all the other elders. So in answer to your question, how do these decisions made? They are made with unanimity among all the elders. So if an announcement is made, you can know that it wasn't the decision of one guy, this guy. It was the decision of all the elders. And uh, how we determined uh, which ones? Well, uh, I don't know if you're wondering about this. Well, are there some that aren't announced? There probably are some, and it's probably the ones we don't know about. I mean, sadly, in a church our size, there are things that go on. We don't know, and all of a sudden, the person has moved to Michigan or something. Well, what do you do at that point? I mean, there's not much you can do. Uh, you know, so, but all the ones that we know about, we try to follow through with Matthew 18. Um, and, and, and in reference to your question, how do you know when to do that, decide what situations, et cetera, when we feel like, sometimes it may take a few weeks, sometimes a few months, but when we feel like we've exhausted all that we can as elders, either in that person's life or in getting others involved. So there's a whole lot that has happened way before any announcement is made. Uh, so that's sort of just a summary overview of how we function as leaders and how the pastors fit in and how decisions are made, etc. what happens on Sundays. Uh, the, those ministry decisions are made by the elder board as a whole with unanimity of thought. Now, we may not always agree in our elders' boards, and we'll debate one another, uh, but when we leave there, uh, as uh, one of our men likes to say, many voices in, one voice out. 
Uh, there's not a bunch of yes men on the board. Everybody has strong views, etc. We will go and toe-to-toe with each other in a godly way, you know. And, uh, but when we leave there, we are a team. And we're unified and say, this is what we're going to do. Uh, so that, that just maybe helps answer. And if you'd like more, whoever you know, asked this, if you'd like more detail, be glad to answer it. Or any of the other elders, if you know one of those men better, they'd be glad to answer uh, your, your question on that. Okay, great questions. Let's stand as we close tonight. Father, thank you again for a great Lord's Day. It is always so, uh, such a great opportunity to come together and lose ourselves and lose our problems and our thoughts and our heartaches and all of the responsibilities and just uh, sing songs of praise, lift our prayers, lift our praises, lift our petitions. Um, Uh, immerse our hearts and our thoughts and our minds in your word and uh, interact with your people. Seek to be an encouragement to others around us, to uh, be encouraged by others. Uh, Thank you for a good day. And may this uh, propel us forward to the rest of the week that we would be salt and light to those around us. And whatever whatever arena you have us, school, work, neighborhoods, whatever it is, uh, may we be salt and light for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.